preparation for the Lord's Supper, uh, we are going to look together in Romans chapter 14. I'm going to read the first 13 verses. Romans chapter 14. I recall that behind this exhortation is the reality uh, that God was doing something uh, relatively new in the world, and that is that he was, uh, by his grace, saving Gentiles and bringing them uh, into the, what had been a largely Jewish church. And uh, that raised issues uh, relating to uh, questions like, don't they have to be circumcised before uh, they can receive eternal life? Do they have to eat the uh, diet of our ancient people? Do they have to keep the days uh, that we had kept? Or are they saved solely on the basis of the person and work of the Lord Jesus? And this had raised not only theological and practical questions, but interpersonal uh, questions. And uh, we take up now the reading at verse 1. The apostle says, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Again, this is not a, a matter of uh, uh, ethics in regard to whether or not you should eat meat or being vegetarian for uh, health purposes. It was a matter of, of religious scruples here. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. The idea is God has received both of them. Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks, and he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we uh, shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or cause to fail in our brother's way. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for this time that we have now to look into your holy word, and we pray that you would use it, uh, encourage us, Father, where need be, reprove us. Lead us afresh to that fountain open to sin and uncleanness. Our Father, we pray that as we would come to the table and share this family meal together, 
we would do so with a proper understanding of your work of grace, not only in our heart, but in the hearts and lives of our brothers and sisters. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, the Bible clearly asserts that the God of heaven sees us and he knows us. He knows not only what we do on the outside, that is, he's, he's not just like some kind of a, a video camera that has the ability to capture what is seen and what is heard, but he has the ability to know what the Bible calls the secrets and intents of our hearts. The Bible asserts that he knows our thoughts before we even think them. Now, what is true of God is not true of us. We do not know what is in men in the way that God does. Now, we do know, the Bible says, by their fruits they will be known, but we do not know infallibly what's in the heart and mind of another as God does. Now, as we come to understand and to apply this, what we're kind of going to come to see is that God not only is concerned with our outward appearance. God is not only concerned with our outward actions. God is not only concerned necessarily with how we treat each other, but with how we think about each other. Because how we think about each other ultimately is going to affect how we treat one another. And because God has that ability to know our hearts and to know our hearts infallibly, God is able at times to interrogate us and to ask us concerning why we're thinking the way that we are, why we're judging the way that we do, why we harbor certain attitudes and thoughts toward a brother or sister in Christ. Jesus asked the question, why do you fixate on the speck that's in your brother's eye while ignoring the plank that's in your own? Jesus is, again, reading people's hearts and minds. Why is it that you have an obsession over the faults of others and pay little attention to the work you need to do on yourself? This is a text that we come to look at today. It tells us that God is concerned with how we view one another in our hearts and in our emotions and in our attitudes. There were those in the church who were causing division. And the fear was that a greater division was going to take place that could fracture this church in Rome. It it was not a division over what we might consider frontline doctrinal issues because they shared those in common. But what was at issue was, how do we think about certain what are called disputable matters that uh, how we eat and and what we eat and what days we celebrate and what days that we don't and while those are disputable matters and matters to which we can come to convictions and live out those convictions the question comes what do we do when somebody differs from us And what Paul wants to give are some what I'm going to call crucial perspectives that need to be in our hearts and in our minds that will lead us and guide us in regard to living a life that is honoring and pleasing to the Lord and that's peaceable among the people of God. And we need to first of all have this crucial perspective on our brethren 
certainly in regard to ourselves, and then finally toward the person and work of Christ. Three crucial perspectives that need to be ours if we are to be peaceable in our life together. So let's begin by looking at what I'm going to call crucial perspectives on our brethren. Now, I'm preaching this message, as you know, prior to our taking of the Lord's Supper. And this is a good reminder that there is a very important communal aspect to our faith. We are not just Christians. We are part of a church. We are part of a body. We're not just a sheep, but we're part of a flock, etc. And there is a reason why we worship together and not in isolation. There's a reason why we take the Lord's Supper together and not simply by ourselves uh, uh, you know, at, at some given time, everybody taking a little prepackaged uh, bread and the cup and then celebrating the Lord's Supper in isolation. For there are things that we face in community that have to do with the work of Christ that we cannot work out in any other way than in community. There are aspects of the Christian life, there are dynamics of the work of Christ that I cannot live out simply by myself. Taking the bread and the cup in a worthy manner, as Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 11, is tied not so much to did you have a good week or a bad week, or were you indulging in some secret sin this week, or another that you haven't confessed as much as it is a time to contemplate what is my heart toward my brothers and sisters. It was for that reason. It was because of the divisions within the body, the church in Corinth, that judgment had come, a judgment that had brought illness to some and even death to others in regard to showing how important this issue is to the Lord, so that when I come and consider and contemplate the body and the blood of the, uh, of the Lord Jesus, I am not doing it in isolation as a private Christian. I'm doing it with my brothers and sisters around me. And my heart and attitude toward you affects my relationship with him. Jesus taught this on the Sermon on the Mount. Remember when he said that if you're going to worship God and you you have a gift to bring, but you remember that your brother has something against you or you have something against your brother, he says, go and make that right before you come and offer your gift. Remember that the work of Christ, not only in using now the language of the temple, when Jesus died, Matthew's gospel tells us that the veil of the temple was torn from the top to the bottom. That is, it opened a way of access to God. But Paul says that Jesus also broke down the walls that divided worshipers and made them one with each other so that the death of Christ is not only having a a vertical elements but horizontal elements as well and again this is why as we read today in first John why my love for my brethren or lack of love for my brethren is a key issue of my assurance now in dealing with crucial perspectives toward our brethren there are perspectives that must be mortified that is put to death, and perspectives that need to be cultivated. And here in the text, there is a description of sins that need to be put to death 
or temptations to sin that need to be dealt with in regard to how we view each other. And that temptation is summed up, it's, it's, it's in two phrases, and you see them in verses 3, 4, and 10. The temptation is to regard, uh, in regard to one another, is either to judge one another, that's one temptation, and the other is to show contempt for each other. You see that there? Let not him who eats despise or show contempt to he does not eat. And let not him who eats judge him who eats. Who are you to judge another servant? Verse 4 and then in verse 10. But why do you judge your brother? Why do you show contempt for your brother? What's going on in your heart? How is it that you and the body of Christ are looking at each other and you're talking about things in which you differ and as a result of that, the conclusion you come to is I either need to judge them or show contempt toward them as though those are your only options because somebody has come to a conclusion studying the evidence is different than what I do. In this case, they were actually studying the Bible, praying to the Lord, and they have come to a conscientious conviction about whether to eat or not eat, to celebrate a day or not celebrate a day. And in hearing this, a brother or sister who differs, either, again, depending on the issue, either stands in judgment of the one or holds the other in contempt. So what happens when you judge somebody? What does it mean to judge somebody? Well, it is to pass a sentence on them. And generally, the judgment is a judgment of condemnation. Now, in a human court, judging sometimes results in acquittal. But in this regard, it's always condemnation. That when you come into the courtroom of our relationship and I listen to you and I weigh what you think over against what I think, I condemn you. So brother stands before you and your assessment and your convictions and they are found wanting. Now, two issues are brought forward in the text. I'm not going to deal with any of them at any great length. We did a bit more of this in our previous study, but there's the issue of food and drink, and then the issues of days, which I submit you submit to you, have to do with the issue of Jewish feast days and festivals. The question: What can you eat with a good conscience? And if you were a Jew, you had spent all your life growing up with a dietary code given to you by Moses, and Moses received that by revelation from God. It wasn't just the law of Moses. And sometimes when we talk about it, we make it sound like Moses made it up. Moses didn't make these things up. Moses, the Bible teaches, got these by direct revelation in his time on the mountain alone with the Lord. And God said, this is clean and this is unclean. This you can eat and this you can't eat as my people because I am the Lord and I redeemed you. This is a way you are going to stand apart and stand distinct from all others. And then there was another issue in that day, and that is in cities like Rome, there were temples that offered sacrifices to various gods and sometimes in the meat market, the meat that you might buy, that nice ribeye or that leg of lamb or whatever, it may not be that it was a clean or unclean, but the question is where did you buy it and how was it slaughtered and what was it sacrificed to? 
And for the Gentile who might think, and even for the Jew who might think, you know, the earth is the Lord's uh, and the fullness thereof, there are, no, there are no other gods. And therefore, if I can get a good deal and I can honor God with my resources and, and buy that beef or buy that lamb, uh, and I can do it with a good conscience because I know uh, that this God does not exist. But for another, it might be a temptation to idolatry or it might raise other questions of conscience. They came to different views on it. The other had to do with the issues of days. Now, in our context, as a Reformed and confessional church who holds to the perpetuity of the fourth commandment, you will know that those who stand against that view will often view Romans 14 as the death knell against any kind of Sabbatarian position. I don't believe that this is what is being stated in the context. I've dealt with it before. I may deal with it again, but it's not what is the burden of the text. That's, he's giving an illustration. But I will say this, that if you hold the view that this text means that there is no fourth commandment, and, you there, and then you say, and everybody must agree with me, then don't use this text. <laughs> Because this text says that if your brother does it to the Lord, let him do it to the Lord. Okay? So people have used this text as to bully people who believe that there is a day that we're to give to God. This is not an issue of law. This is an issue of a disputable matter. So, anyway, uh, if you're going to use it that way, then, then use, it, <laughs> use it properly. The issue here is tied to the contentious issues of the first century church, especially of the blended Jews and Gentiles together. And what would happen in the calendar year when things like Passover or, or the Feast of Tabernacles or the new moons or the day of Pentecost came along. And for some, they'd celebrated them all their life. They saw them as pointing to Christ, prefiguring Christ. They understood the fulfillment of it, but believed that there could be a very special way now to celebrate those as believers as unto the Lord and celebrate the fullness of it. And others said, no, they're pictures, they're types and they're shadows, and they have passed away so that unto the Lord, I will not celebrate it. And so again, both of them, and this is the important issue, both of them have a religiously settled conviction as to why they do or don't do what they do. I believe God is the Lord of all, and, therefore, and, and, and that there are no other gods. Okay, I hear what you're saying, but do you know what goes on in those temples where that meat it's tainted it's tainted by association i can't in good conscience before the lord do that i couldn't pray and say thank you to god and the other says well i can all right and so what happens as you work through these things is you treat one another either with judgment i condemn you because of this or i treat you with contempt so if I believe the Lord wants me to keep a day, how do I view those who ignore it? Or if you convictionally come to the conclusion that in light of Christ's fulfillment of such days, I do not keep it. When those days come as unto the Lord, I don't, as unto the Lord, I don't keep it. Again, so far, so good. That's okay. It's okay. Disagreement is not always disunity. 
It's not wrong for brethren to come to different conclusions on certain things. There are things most surely believed among us. There are issues that unite us as the people of God. And there are issues where somebody's going to say, I'm convinced in my own mind and I'm convinced in my own mind. And, and we could go through a host of those. I touched on some of those last time, uh, last month. But the issue is not so much, how do I think about the issue, but how do I think about the person who holds to the issue? And if you're not aware, this is very relevant to the day and age in which we live, and not just in the church, but outside the church. How dare you disagree with me? I'm right, and therefore, you're not just wrong, you're stupid or you're immoral. What is that? That's passing judgment on another. Again, not just a judgment on his position. That's one thing. To debate an issue and pass judgment on the issue is one thing. But to pass it on him, Brother, I don't believe that's a good position. It's a different thing from saying, you're a legalist, you're a Pharisee. You view him not only with judgment, he says, but also with contempt. That is, so what is it to view somebody with contempt or to despise them? It's the same idea. To view them with contempt is to dismiss them. As it were, almost erase them from your mind. I'm, I'm blocking you. You're not worth the effort. You're not worth my time. I'm done with you. Now, if I'm given to judgment or contempt as a believer, and God knows this. Now, again, I don't necessarily have to say it, but I have it. That I view a brother or sister who has come to a conclusion different than I do with contempt. Or, again, I pass judgment on them. And have I ever done that? Oh boy, have I done this. Am I tempted to do it? All the time. But what things come now to say, no, that must be confronted. Your perspective needs to change. Because you're viewing them in association, first of all, with the issue. And you need to change your perspective. You need to change the way you see them. And so two truths are brought forth. And they are these, who are that, who, who is this person in relation to Christ and who are they in relation to me? Who are they in relation to the Lord? Well, in the context, they are the Lord's servant. Who are they? They're the Lord's servant, not yours. He is their master, not you. They owe him allegiance and obedience and subservience, not you. They have to bow to him and not to you and to your convictions. And Paul is going to ask this really pointed question in essence. Who do you think you are? When did you get to the point where you started going and judging the servants of somebody else? That brother or sister, the Lord is saying is not yours, he's mine. And on the last day, when judgment day comes, let me just explain how this is going to work. So the last day comes and all the nations are gathered before the Lord, there's not a little seat with you on it. What do you think about this one? Well, Lord, thank you. I've already judged all of them. and you know, I'm not going to stand before you. 
If he needs to be dealt with, the Lord is saying, I'll deal with him. Again, I'm not talking here about church discipline. I'm not talking about heresy. I'm not talking about immorality. It's not what I'm talking about. So this is not like, like, oh, well, you know, this isn't just join hands kumbaya time. Well, there are things you need to have. You need to lay down parameters of what is truth. But again, this is a matter of perspective. And so he says, allow that this person has a desire to please the Lord. Can, 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 you, can you imagine that somebody has come to a different conclusion with an equal desire that you have than to, to, to please the Lord? That two people with an equal desire to please and to honor the Lord can look at their Bible and pray to him and arrive at different conclusions. Can you allow for that? Can you believe that? And will you allow, verse 4 says, <clears throat> he says, who are you to judge another servant? To his own master, he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand for God is able to make him stand. And part of what he's getting at here is, look, the Lord loves him. The Lord has justified him and the Lord is going to preserve him and he is going to be kept and presented faultless and blameless before the throne, even though he differs from you. God is able to make them stand. They are not just servants, but justified servants who will reach glory. They've been predestined. They've been called, as we saw this morning, and adopted, and they're being sanctified. And he will enable them to be glorified. Again, they will not, they will not face you on the last day, and you will not face them. We will all face the Lord. And depending on who you are and what your relationship is with him... That's either terrifying or, 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 or glorious. But we need to understand, listen, this one that I'm mad about, I'm going to come and have the Lord's Supper with them, but I view them contemptuously. Well, remember, you're not their judge. You're not their sanctifier. You're not their master. The Lord is. But the second perspective, so in contradiction to judgment and contempt, that they belong to the Lord. But then secondly, they do belong to me in this way. The second perspective that you need to have is that this frustrating person in your life is not only the Lord's servant who has been received by him, as we brought out last time in verse 3, not only one who will be enabled to stand in his presence on the basis of grace on the last day, but he's your brother or sister. You see how this is brought out in Romans 14.10. Why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. He's not your enemy. He's your brother. We're part of the same family. We can add, using the various Bible analogies, we're part of the same tree, part of the same family, part of the same flock, part of the same body. But the emphasis is on family. Not your enemy, not your opponent, but your brother. Not someone to be condemned and dismissed, but embraced and loved and helped and received. We have the same father. We have the same elder brother in Jesus, the same sibling group. 
He's part of the same family. You are the family brought together by God's grace. And dear ones, that perspective must be upheld when dealing with others, especially when we disagree passionately and convictionally. It's possible to disagree passionately and convictionally. And yet still look at this one and say, hey, brother, I love you. And who am I to judge another man's servant? Before the Lord, we stand or fall. And bless God, he's able to make us both stand. Because one day we're both going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And the Lord may show, you know what, you know what may happen? You're both wrong. I don't know, you can both be right. It's possible. I don't think it's possible you can both be right. But you know what? You can both be wrong. Or the other thing is, and this is the reality here, sometimes it's possible to be uh, wrong about something that's right. Yeah, your position's right, but you've negated it by your condemnation and by your dismissal of another. So crucial perspective. Who are the people in this body? Who are the people of God that you interact with in another congregation? And they've got different set of convictions about certain things. They do certain things a little differently. I, I, when I was online more and I, I, I would see certain things, whatever it is, a little thing about even something about church government or something. And I'm like, doesn't that just frost me? And I'm like, I don't even want to know that guy. Where's that attitude? What, what, what pride? As though you're not pleasing to me. How come you don't think like I think? And I have a reason for believing what I believe. There's a reason for believing what he believes before his own master. We stand or fall. So crucial perspectives on others now. Crucial perspectives on ourselves. Romans 14, 7 and 8. For none of us lives to himself. And no one dies to himself. This is the reality again. If you're in Christ, you're part of a body, you're part of a community, you're part of a church, you don't get to live your life out in isolation. None of us lives to himself, no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. We belong to him, we belong to one another. We died, Paul says, or Paul says to the Colossians, you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So how do I view myself? Well, in this, I, I belong to him. Life's not about me and my own fulfillment in every way. I'm not a law to myself. I belong to another. I've been bought with a price. And again, to the point of the larger text, we do not live our Christianity in isolation. In the broadest sense, we see ourselves, our lives, our attitudes, and our relationships as being before the Lord. Because we're going to stand before him. We're going to give an account to him. We all need to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And this is what most fundamentally sets us apart from unbelievers and from nominal professors of religion. And it's this, and this is hard for some people to understand because you've not tasted and seen that the Lord is so good. Jesus is not tangential to us. He's not an add-on. He's not an option. He's our life. 
He, lay, he lived for us and we live for him. He died for us and we, as it were, die and live and are raised in him. We live unto him. We, we, we die in him and unto him. We are his, whether we live or whether we die in this life and in the, world, in the next. We belong to him. It's our fundamental identity. It's who we are. We're in Christ. We're Christians. We love the Lord our God. Now, in a church, this should be the attitude of all of us toward ourselves, and therefore, we cannot but see our, our brethren in this way. I've said that badly. Let me, let me put that's Is this your attitude? Is, whether you live or die, that you're the Lord's? So it's, if every single one of us can say that in isolation, then the hope is that what's true of me is true of them. And, what I'm, and that safely assumes then that my brother or sister with whom I disagree lives for him and whether they live or die, they're his. That's their fundamental identity. In a church where everybody is, the best you can tell, is a true believer, then this is the attitude that all of us have. Whether we live or die, we're the Lord's. That's how we see ourselves. It's how my brother sees himself. It's how my sister sees themselves. And again, they've arrived at a different conclusion on this matter of a day or the eating or drinking or whatever the case might be. But they've done so as somebody who says, whether we live or die, we're the Lord's. Because Jesus is saying, look, they belong to me. Don't judge my servant. They belong to me. And what they're saying is, I live unto him, I die unto him. Whether I live or whether I die, I'm his. Lock, stock, and barrel. My difference in conclusion is not me withholding some of my life from the Lord. And whatever judgment you're getting at, well, you must not be a really sold-out Christian because if you're a really sold-out Christian, you'd agree with me on baptism and church government. And you know, No, no. Somebody who lives unto the Lord just as I'm trying to live unto the Lord, can come at a different conclusion. So rather than, again, condemning them, unfriending them, disassociating from them or from the family, I will assume the best for them that they, is that they have the heart that I have by grace. I will trust that if they live, they live to the Lord. They may do so arriving again at different conclusions that I do. But I hope and believe that just as I strive to live my life in a manner well-pleasing to the Lord, so do they. So is that your heart? Is that the heart of a Christian? Is this the heart of a Christian? Hey, I'm not saying we do it perfectly. But is this, does this describe the heart of a Christian? If my brother or sister is a Christian, then how I view myself can, in a right sense, be projected onto them. They have the same heart, same desire. All right. Finally, crucial perspectives on the Lord himself, the person and work of the Lord himself. Verse 9, for to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be the Lord of both the living, excuse me, the dead and the living. Now that Christ died and rose and lived again is at the very heart of the gospel, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is the gospel that I presented, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The death and resurrection are at the very heart of our faith and life. And if we were to ask, unto what end did Jesus die? 
Why did Jesus die? And why did Jesus rise again? Why does he live again? What a wonderful discussion we could have. And if we were to have that discussion openly, which again, I think we could profitably do for hours, we would unpack many beautiful and life-giving applications. Why did Jesus die? Why the cross? Well, because we had sinned. And because God is holy and God must pardon sin, uh, it must be covered and paid for. He died to pay for our sins. He died to open a way to heaven. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He died in demonstration of the love of the triune God for us, even while we were enemies. He died to reconcile us. We could open all of that up. And he rose to show God's approval on his work. His death and resurrection are the grounds of our hope of eternal life as believers. But Paul's reminding us that's not all he did when he died. He died to be our Lord. He died purchasing us. He bought us with his own blood. He bought us. And for our life, he died. We sang that this morning. He bought us with his own blood. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, For you were bought at a price. What price was that? The blood of the spotless Son of God. You were not redeemed, Peter says, with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your fathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished. You're bought at a price. He is indeed your master. Therefore, Paul says, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. He purchased the church, Paul told the Ephesian elders, with his own blood. He is its head and he is its Lord. He is not you. You didn't die and rise again for the church. He did. The church is not yours to be bent to your will. The people in it are not first and foremost accountable to you, but to him. Now, again, we need to see this in the context in which it is intended. And the context is that he died for them. Your brother or sister with whom you're struggling. He died for them and he died for you. He rose for them and he rose for you. He lives for them and he lives for you. He died for them. He loves them. They are precious to him. Therefore, do not judge and condemn them. And in so doing in your own heart, negate the purposes of his death. Don't belittle them with your speech and attitudes and actions and words. And don't try to get brethren on your side against them. Again, I'm not saying sins ought not to be confronted. I'm not saying that bad teaching ought to be tolerated. But there's a difference between our view of the opinion and our view of the one who holds it. Yes, some people need to be disciplined. Sometimes people need to be excommunicated. But again, unto what end? The ends unto which Jesus died. Yes, people will prove difficult in the body, but he loves them. Do not dismiss them lightly if he came to die for them and live for them and to be their Lord in life and in death. 
will you condemn someone for whom he died to remove condemnation? See, sometimes we come into the church and, 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 and we may look Godward and say, no condemnation, now I dread. But we look at one another and say, yeah, condemnation, I do dread. Will you condemn someone for whom he died to remove condemnation? Jesus should be able to look at anyone in the church and say, where are those who condemn you? Neither do I condemn you. How can again it be said that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ and then have his body become the source of the condemnation he died to eliminate? Will you reject the one that he receives and, and treat with contempt one for whom he shed his own blood? See, that's the issue here. It's how you see yourself and how you see them, but also how do you see the Lord? He's their master. He's able to make them stand. They're going to give an account to him just like you are. And so we come now to remind ourselves in the taking of bread and the cup that he died for us. And we are going to remind ourselves, dear ones, that he, he, he this interesting language, he rose and lived again. He intercedes for us and will come for us. And as we pass the elements to our right or to our left, and if the one to the right or the left of us is an openly confessed believer in Christ, then we are saying in our taking, he did this for me, and I believe he did this for you. And then they pass it to another and we say to them, and he did it for you. He shed his blood for you. He came and he died and he rose again for me and he did it for you. May it be that we will cling to that. Well, let's pray and let's ask God's blessing on these things. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for these moments uh, in your word and before one another. Father, we do pray that you would aid us in thinking rightly about our dear brethren, your servants, that we would think rightly about ourselves and rightly about the person and work of our Savior. Father, that, that we have a heart, that if we, whether we live or die, we do it for you. It's only because your grace has made it such. Lord, do bless this time now around the table as we eat and drink one with another. May we do so to your honor and glory. For it is in Jesus' name we pray.